I am Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with me today is Brendan Miller and Jacob Morgan to talk about the future of payments. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Thank you. So let's start with where we are. We began payments in a distributed network, ATM machines and the such. We've advanced it into an integrated software which helped propel commerce forward, both in a physical sense, point of sale, and in a digital sense. But we're at the beginnings of a different kind of change. And I'll start with you, Brendan. What is causing us to rethink the role and placement of payments into the larger commerce um, experience? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, payments is still a friction point. So over the last 10 years, we've we've made huge strides in integrating payments into software systems and the point-of-sale systems and the e-commerce experiences and the mobile apps. And we're even seeing that now move into uh, B2B systems and ERP systems, just making um, payment, electronic payment, part of the the uh, the flow of, of, of commerce, the flow of accounts payable and accounts receivable. But um, it, it, as we think about more consumer experiences going forward, uh, there are still these these points of friction. Uh, whether you're in a store, you still have to wait in line. Uh, you're in a hospitality environment, and you're waiting at a restaurant for your, for a waiter to bring you a bill. There's still all these friction points around uh, the payment. So, uh, as we look around the landscape and look at trends happening in commerce, we see uh, we see artificial intelligence, uh, um, machine learning, these types of technologies now. Are, are creating uh, improved commerce, the potential for improved commerce experiences. And, and we see payments as, as, as part of that uh, ecosystem that will be um, changed in the, in the near future. And these experiences will become more seamless, we believe, more embedded into um, the overall commerce experience. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about payments because of what you said in terms of technology a linear view of the evolution of payments. But I think your, your point is different, which is it's not really a linear question. It's much more of, of thinking more broadly about how the customer, what the customer expectations are and how value is created through the commerce experience, thusly payments playing a, a role in that, but not necessarily payments unto itself. Yeah, I think a lot of times when I talk to payments people, they think that payments is transforming commerce um, I, I think that's a wrong approach. I really think that uh, it's the commerce technology, it's the, the platforms and the systems that are out there that are really uh, transforming payments. Can we perhaps break down the the experience of the, the payments process or a way of thinking about it? Yeah, yeah. well, today, if you think about uh, your, your traditional consumer payment, let's take an in-store experience. Uh, it's probably something everyone's familiar with. Um, you, uh, you think of the traditional EMV chip card experience. You uh, dip your card into uh, a terminal, and then there's an authentication process where uh, typically you enter a PIN. And um, you, you know, with with ex- experiences like Amazon Go or uh, other uh, computer vision experiences in store, there's this opportunity. Uh, for, for instance, facial recognition, and they could uh, authenticate you even before you started transacting. So 
every retailer out there wants the ability to recognize their customer as they walk in the door. And so, uh, for instance, computer vision now gives us the ability to potentially do that in the future. And uh, and while they're recognizing you, why not already authenticate your your account and your transaction as well? Um, you know, you could pre-authorize a transaction, for instance, making um, making it almost a, a pre-authorization uh, for, for the for the payment to happen uh, instead of a, a what we do today is put stuff in our cart and then uh, have to authorize the the consumer at the end of the shopping process. And and I think from my perspective, it's. It, it, it's almost like a step before that because um, we're increasingly seeing sort of asynchronous payments. You know, if you think about something like Starbucks Order Ahead, which is an experience that a lot of people are familiar with, uh, the payment doesn't really feature in the experience at all. It's more about, you know, as to, to your original point about commerce driving payments, you know, the, the payment is subsumed in that flow of someone wanting a drink and then sequencing when they want to get their drink. And, um, you know, that sort of asynchronous payment, I think, is uh, where you're getting more divorced, perhaps, from the point at which you you authenticate. And it's more down to some of the technology that you've already gone through in the process, for example, of launching, um, you know, the Starbucks app or the fact that you have the handset. Um, You know, other mediums, other technologies are now standing in for your identity purely triangulated by your mere presence um, or, the, or where the device is, for example. So the big outcome here is that that payments begins to be sort of the invisible valuable, which is the more invisible it is, the, the more frictionless it is, the more valuable, ironically, it becomes. This is where we're heading. I, I, I think so. And, I, you know, one of the interesting things is the sort of regional variation that you have. So, you know, in the States, you kind of have... Um, you know, dip and pin, um, whereas in the, in the UK, uh, you actually had, um, you know, chip and, sorry, in the States, you have chip and signature, and over here, you have, um, you know, a pin-based solution. So something like Contactless, when it was launched in Europe, which is where I'm based, um, did actually add genuine value to the transaction because it sped the transaction up, um, whereas in the US, it wasn't actually the same sort of process because it added a little bit more friction. Um, so, it, it, again, it depends on the sort of local customs as to how some of these technologies play out when you, uh, when you start to deploy them. And it seems like there, even in sort of wave two, which we look at the integrated software, which is your, your point, Brendan, I mean, that made it more convenient and more speedy. But the broader point here is that the customer wants to enjoy the commerce experience broadly, and that brings in other issues, including rewards. What happens at the point of transaction to which the customer enjoys the rewards that they've earned in many different ways? I mean, how is, how is that, that part of the puzzle going to get addressed in, that, in this system? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it, you know, you could even say that uh, rewards and loyalty have been integrated. Uh, most retailers and merchants out there today have an app that helps consumers uh, track their loyalty points or rewards and offers and things like that. Uh, but they don't do necessarily a great job of, of orchestrating the the right offer and coupon and, and, and loyalty and points redemption experience for the consumer. So, um, you know, I see this potential of a, a, a opportunity out there for the, the offers and rewards to uh, be more predictive and to help orchestrate the, the whatever the, per, the consumer is buying at that moment or shopping for 
the rewards and offers could be uh, tell the consumer, hey, this is this is the best uh, way to spend your rewards and offers um, on the on this item, and and it may not just be the the merchant's uh, closed loop program. Uh, in the future, uh, thanks to technologies like blockchain, there's a potential where uh, there could be a, a more efficient use of a, a broader um, open platform for rewards and loyalties where there's more consortiums of, of, uh, of, of retailers working together, much like airlines do today. Uh, I can spend my United uh, miles on Lufthansa and other airlines, and, and I, I see the potential opportunity for more and more retailers to do have uh, coalition programs like that in the future thanks to technologies like the blockchain and it be more efficient and more effective of how consumers use those points and rewards. Yeah, because there seems like there's two issues there. One is that if, as we looked at the effectiveness of the loyalty program, strictly, from, let's say, from a retail perspective, they're not proving to be terribly effective because they're sort of working on behalf of the merchant to drive the next transaction. In this example, this consortium or the orchestration rewards is working uniquely on behalf of the consumer, meaning it is converting all of the different pockets of rewards that exist in airlines or merchants, wherever they might be, and almost creating a liquid currency out of that and making that, to your point, predictive, meaning it's available in the best possible way at that point of transaction. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And how do intelligent agents play in that puzzle? Could there be a potential where Amazon is that broker of all your rewards because they're the ones that I'm having the conversation with if I'm, you know, having Alexa in my home. Is that is that a potential scenario in the future? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's a, that's a really good good point. I hadn't thought about that. But uh, you, the intelligent agent, whether that's Siri or, or Google, could be the, the consumer uh, interface uh, for those rewards. So maybe there is a, some back-end system uh, that's organizing those offers and rewards for the consumer, and it's actually Siri, though, or, or Alexa being the delivery mechanism um, for the consumer, alerting them to um, the potential that they could receive this reward of, or this offer if they um, on, on this item uh, based on what they're buying. And it's an interesting one, isn't it, when you start to think about the idea of consolidated rewards programs and, and coalitions, because, you know, the rewards currency itself potentially has the opportunity to become the more valuable thing than the actual underlying currency in the sense because you know your the value to you is where you can spend that mm -hmm. and you know you could be in that position where you're being asked by Alexa or, or Google Home if you want to spend your reward points on a particular thing and all of a sudden that becomes the thing of value to you more so than the actual underlying currency. And if you think about the current issue with digital wallets, whether it's Apple Pay or Google Pay or Samsung Pay, and and the usage of those, uh, one of the one of the issues there is that these all these reward systems uh, don't live in there, and consumers forget uh, that they have these rewards. And part of the potential of the the mobile or digital wallet was that it was going to help us organize that. Even the the early value proposition for Google Wallet when it entered that it was going to organize all my rewards and all my points, um, that still hasn't come to fruition. And so it's going to take some type of uh, technology like this, whether it's blockchain or some other type of open database uh, for, for these types of things to start to take place and provide real value to the consumer. And it's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it, for the uh, 
you know, for the, for the retailer themselves, because this is actually one point where they do want to add a tiny little bit of friction, because if the rewards themselves become truly invisible, then they, they cease to lose the value themselves. You know, they yeah. just become something that you expect. So, you know, whilst, you know, fishing around for lots of pieces of paper in a physical leather wallet is not an ideal scenario at the moment, neither would be that kind of straight through rewards um, incorporation. You know, there, there has to be some sort of tangible recognition of benefit for the customer in the process. So we're, we're describing a future environment, which we have named autonomous payments, which is the role of payment sort of melts into the broader and more elegant consumer experience. So let's go through some of the attributes of this future environment, looking at how it plays out with who the, with the current players that are participating in payments and commerce. And I'll start with, you know, right now we don't have a global environment, but we have certainly global players. How do we look at this from a global and regional and nation state standpoint going forward? Yeah, I think I think you're going to have, and like we're seeing today, uh, it's not going to change where you're going to have regional players um, take take the lead. So, uh, for instance, for instance, in uh, India, Paytm and in uh, Asia, things like uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay um, have sort of leapfrogged, in a sense, a lot of the more traditional payment uh, methods and networks that we have, say, here in the U.S. and, and in the U.K. And so I, I don't see that changing. I don't think there's going to be one dominant player globally that's going to be able to um, execute on this. Every every nation, every country has uh, different payments infrastructure uh, there's cultural differences amongst uh, consumers, uh, but I think there is uh, this this need. It's a human need um, that that goes beyond just cultural. Uh, that, that for the most part, the consumers want convenience and ease of transacting, and so I think those will be the principles that that drive this idea of autonomous payments. And, and I think as well, there is that sort of interoperability, with, which is a challenge. I mean, the last thing a consumer wants is to be faced with you know, a, a whole host of payment options and they then have to select. And I think we're beginning to see that as you know, certainly at a regional level, for example, in Europe, there is a little bit more consolidation with things like um, the second phase of the payment services directive and some of the sort of open payments initiatives. So we're already seeing the beginnings of some of that consolidation. And we're currently in a political environment where some nation states want to take hold, more direct hold and control of their economy. And payments has been mostly, to your point, global interoperability, which breeds some suspicion. How much does a nation state begin to put some friction in that system or that evolution because of whether their law enforcement needs or whether their their own needs of controlling their own economy? How much does that play out in the backdrop of global interoperability? That that is an interesting question. I mean, we're, we're certainly seeing some of that um, here in the UK with Brexit, for example. I mean, the uh, um, the remaining members of the European Union are not as comfortable with um, things like uh, security interoperability and some of the, uh, you know, the anti-fraud measures that we've been familiar with. And this isn't just at, at the payments level. This is is at that sort of broader level. So there is a there's definitely an element of that. Yeah, and I think privacy will continue to be around payments is going to be an ongoing issue. And how do we secure? Uh, data and IDs and uh, what data uh, are, are is going to be willing to be shared, whether that's by the consumers or amongst other uh, providers that are in the in the uh, value chain of payments, and so that that'll continue 
I think, to be an issue for the long term. Yeah, even if it's a question of where the data can be stored and how that stored data can move across borders, is I mean, that's a, itself a complicating question. That's right. And, and, and the other thing to note is most of these uh, payment systems globally have, have been built upon um, a, a spec. And um, the spec is only able to read so much data that's passed between um, the banks or whether it's between networks and those types of things. So um, it, there would have to be a complete and total uh, redo, if you will, of all these uh, payment systems and the, and the technology that supports them um, and, the, and, the, and the specs for them that, to read the different types of uh, potential payments that would, would happen and the, the data that would come from them. So a lot of, a lot of this will take a long time really to uh, mature because of uh, the, the standards and specs that are out there to, to create interoperability amongst between banks. So you had mentioned Alipay, Paytm, WeChat Pay. I mean, what does this future state do to existing card networks? Well, I think um, we're seeing this already happen. Um, the, the, in these developing markets, the card networks are, are playing less of a role. Um, you know, in the U.S. and the U.K., credit cards are, and debit cards are, are very much a dominant um, payment method. But if you look at some of these emerging markets, uh, for instance, Paytm is the number one uh, used payment method uh, within India, and I think cards are, are third or fourth on the list. And so uh, what you see is companies like MasterCard and Visa trying to partner with Paytm and Alipay um, to get relevance in, in these markets. Yeah, because I think part of the challenge as well for them is they, they, they haven't really got the playbook or determined how to crack some of these emerging markets. You know, they're in, moving into scenarios where there is a large volume of unbanked consumers and they just quite simply don't have that easy, easy sort of uh, introduction to a, to a large and um, uh, already fully formed market as they have when they've kind of gone into other European countries or the UK or, or whatever. So they, they are struggling to work out how to crack those markets. Yeah, and you brought up earlier, Jacob, PSD2 as a regulation, which obviously open banking is now becoming the, either the law of the land or the norm of the land. How do banks evolve into this future environment? I mean, they're, the, they're in many cases, a primary issuer of the card itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in some ways it is in favor of the banks because things like PSD2 actually drive um, direct credit payments. Um, so it is going to be easy for third parties to then uh, connect to the banks and enable payments between the banks and their, their own uh, merchant um, accounts. And that actually, to some degree, is threatening the card model because the cards, you know, the card networks themselves can be uh, disintermediated in that respect. Um, but again, you know, one of the points that you made earlier, or, or Brendan may well have made, was around uh, specs. And this is one of the issues we've had in, in the implementation of uh, open banking and, and PSD2 in Europe is that there haven't been any specifications. It's been done to standards, but those standards don't drive exactly how it will happen from a technology perspective. So I think where people are looking at um, you know, driving either at a nation state level or, or a regional um, change within the payment network, they really do have to think through interoperability and specifications as opposed to just standards, which are then open to interpretation. You know, one of the things that we touched on in the beginning of this episode was this notion of rewards and loyalty and, and who plays there. So 
who who are the players and in this future state are there sort of winners and, and losers when it comes to how consumers engage with rewards and, and loyalty programs? Um, I, I think, number one, it's companies that are working to um, create more interoperability amongst rewards that are uh, essentially the connected tissue. And um, those may be players that that are kind of no-name companies out there that are companies we have not heard of before, smaller companies that are working with uh, some of the bigger firms that are uh, – processing loyalty and rewards for companies, companies like FIS and FiveServe, so some of these companies that kind of sit in the back end of uh, uh, alliance data, some of these companies that kind of sit in the back end of loyalty programs. Um, and there, there can be third parties that come along and try to uh, c- create connective tissue or uh, uh, interoperability amongst those those programs. I think those can be some of the winners. I, I think uh, the the companies that have a, a, a very emotional connected relationship with the consumer, uh, th- that being Amazon and Facebook and and Google, um, that can orchestrate some of this for the consumer and be that uh, endpoint for the consumer for, for, for rewards. I think they have a potential to play here as well in the future. Jacob, you made this point earlier, which is this might be the more important use of currency than just straightforward the cash, which is my rewards currency is the is the variation at the transaction. That's what that's what makes it better or worse. And it does strike me that for many retailers, they're just trying to do the first step, which is tune their, their loyalty programs or rewards programs to the consumer versus the merchant. Now this is a second big step in that journey, which is if they go slow enough, do they just get overwhelmed by some of the players that you just described, Brendan, which is if Amazon jumps in or, or Facebook, whoever, and actually resolves this, this you know, overcoming the walled garden structure of rewards, that kind of blows up the merchant's ability to engage the customer on their terms. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, there are a couple of, there's a wallet here in in the UK that's already cottoned onto this. They are recognizing that their success is really through understanding what retailers want. And the retailer ultimately wants to know their customers, they want to be able to reach them, and they want to be able to sell to them. So they've actually orchestrated all of their kind of loyalty driving features within the wallet that support all of those three kind of imperatives. So, you know, they've done their human-centered design and their research to understand what drives deeper relationships and what drives, um, you know, repeat purchases. So, for example, they offer things like um, bulk buying because, you know, that does actually mean that you will drink coffee faster rather than the stamp card. Um, And again, it's people that understand the outcome from a customer perspective and help retailers drive their customers towards um, the sorts of relationships and the sorts of interactions that they that are going to be beneficial for both parties you know as brendan says that you know the googles the apples the facebook's of this world the people who have that um, relationship have the data and the insights and also have the wherewithal to help create some of those slick interoperable customer experiences so a key piece of this puzzle is data about the customer and with gdpr being the becoming the law of the land we have a concept of zero-party data, which is that the customer creates and brokers out their data versus it's created by first or third-party data. How much is that dynamic going to play out in the space, and how much does that tell payment providers that they should think about being brokers for that zero-party data? Well, I think 
I think Tim Cook is right when he when he says um, privacy is a fundamental human right, and um, I think that's where companies need need to start when it comes to privacy. So, um, th this idea that uh, somehow payment providers would be um, in the in the business of, of selling out data to third parties, I, I don't think is probably realistic going forward. However, there is a tremendous value in the data, and um, there are trusted entities that control your data or have your data. Uh, company uh, firms like a bank, for instance, is, is a highly trusted firm that has a ton of data on consumers. And uh, if, if consumers are given more control, and those those trusted entities, whether it's banks or, or other technology firms, can um, deliver relevant experiences based on that data. I think I think consumers will will enable it or will allow it. But I think we're in this period right now where all of those pieces have have not come together yet. So um, uh, you know, and I think there, there's this other piece uh, when it comes to data as well, when it comes to um, uh, fraud protection. And so there's a tremendous amount of data that's captured in the background um, around a transaction. Um, that is handled by typically a third party to uh, essentially approve the transaction or score a transaction based on, on data. So uh, I think there's p potential now for uh, additional scrutiny of those types of firms, those third party firms that are doing fraud prevention and what data they're collecting on, on consumers. And, th and I think as well with things like GDPR and also you know the concepts of open banking and PSD2 that we have here in Europe, they are based around customers granting access to third parties to their data. So it's not just the actual sort of moment of the payment, it's also the footprint that the payment leaves behind. And we certainly expect to see customers becoming far more aware of the value of their data. And the consequence of that is, of course, they start to expect something in return for giving you access to that information or for you know, providing you with additional data that you can then use to uh, drive um, deeper insight or um, do more sort of uh, accurate scoring, for example. So they will start to understand the value of what they have in terms of their own data footprints more and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there seems to be two parts of this, which is one is the opacity of data and resurrecting the concept of value exchange, which is there's a whole arms race about third-party data out there that the customer is loosely aware of. And it's it sort of makes the economies go, but it's not on behalf of the customer quite often. And GDPR obviously gets at that. It does seem like this future environment tries to reconcile both of those things, which is giving consumers full clarity about what is the data and the use of that data, but giving it liquidity, meaning using that data in the way that benefits the consumer. Both appear to be levers of this future payments environment, absolutely. I, I, I definitely think that that that's that's a good way to describe it. Of, of, of that, uh, this data will have new liquidity for for consumers if they choose to use it, and they may choose not to. How do emerging technologies play here? Um, it, you know, in the beginning of this episode, Brendan, you had described <clears throat> an experience in which, um, you know, there would be no checkout lines, and there could be, you know, facial recognition or biometrics or other data points used to say like, oh, this is you, and therefore, you know, you authenticate this transaction to occur. But obviously, that's a different type of data that we're talking about now and highly personal information. So uh, what happens in this future state? I mean, with, again, things like GDPR, these are sort of conflicting um, forces, perhaps. Uh, yes, yes and no. I, I think it, it goes back to giving going back to that 
fundamental right that uh, and giving the consumer control of that. So mm-hmm. if I do not want to participate in the facial recognition program that a certain store is offering um, to enhance my shopping experience, that's my total right and 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 the expectation uh, that the the store or the the brand would not um, not not do anything with that data or not capture data on, on me. So um, I, I think that that's it's it's all about giving the consumer choice and visualization of how they. Uh, how the company is using that data for their own benefit. And that, that's going to be the key. And I think we had a conversation earlier prior to this podcast itself, which is the possible use of blockchain in this model, which says that there's a version of Jen Isabella. There's many attributes, but she'll sit in different pieces of the blockchain. It'll get reconstructed upon a transaction and then deconstructed back so that all of your data is not sitting in a single database. It's not vulnerable to a hacker you know, what's happened here in the States before. How much is the technology like blockchain so essential to the broader use of customer data, whether they've opted in or opted out? Well, there's a lot of technology out there. It could be uh, cryptology. It could be blockchain technology that could better facilitate um, uh, how this how this identity would come together at the moment of, of transaction. So um, I, I think that there is, when you start to talk about facial recognition or biometric IDs, things like that, um, there's this massive concern of, well, it's sitting in a database and um, that database can, will, will be hacked. And what, you know, and you can change a, you can change a uh, credit card number today easily, uh, but, but you can't change somebody's identity, uh, physical identity or their uh, you know, social security number. It's very difficult. So um, there are things out there, uh, whether it be cryptology or blockchain, I think that have the potential where um, they could, at the moment of transaction, come together and, and provide this full identity uh, that would be fully encrypted and, 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 or tokenized uh, to abstract any, any type of data that would, uh, could be hacked. So we're talking about this future state. What's the time horizon here? What are we talking 2020, 2025? What are we thinking in terms of this autonomous payments? Uh, It's actually really hard to to put a date on because there are so many pieces of the puzzle that need to come together, Mm -hmm. um, you know, including things like consumer adoption and, and changing changing habits around payments, which are things that are, you know, traditionally based around repetition. Um, so it's not just getting the technologies in place and the, you know, the various readers that you need and, and the, the various sort of secure stores and, and that kind of thing. You also then need to drive a change in consumer habit to drive adoption. Um, so it's quite hard to put a precise precise sort of timeline on. Yeah, I, anything in payments moves slowly. So I don't think we're talking next year or even the year after. I think uh, for the most part, the, the, these ideas are things that sit five or, or 10 years out, um, at least, uh, and, and it'll, it'll happen in waves. It's not going to happen in one fell swoop. And so it'll be a slow migration, not, uh, nevertheless. This feels like there's a lot of moving pieces. And where you have moving pieces, you have markets that evolve and fits and starts. It's not very graceful. How, how do you see sort of the preparedness across the different players here in terms of their awareness of, acceptance of, and preparation of movement here? I think one of the things you're going to see is uh, a lot more uh, acquisition and merger activity in the payment space. And so uh, the the card networks aren't going to just sit by and, and be disrupted, nor, nor will banks. So you think about blockchain technology, uh, for instance, and the biggest 
investors uh, in blockchain technology are financial institutions. And uh, and so the same thing with the card networks. Um, they're betting on future technologies. They're uh, ac- acquiring uh, companies. And, and so um, so we're not saying that, uh, the, you know, the banks are going away or those types of things. We're not making those types of predictions. Um, but what, what you will see is uh, of more mergers, more acquisitions within the payment space uh, to facilitate uh, these types of experiences uh, going forward. New, new technology being melded uh, in, into uh, maybe more legacy technology or legacy companies that are in the space. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree, and I think as well one of the interesting things that we already see a little bit of is that some of the technologies that you might not have thought were the most kind of cutting edge, things like QR codes and that kind of thing, are actually beginning to get more kind of um, credibility in in the wider payment landscape because they are quite simply very straightforward, easy to implement, and to some degree the lowest common denominator can actually. Uh, you know, get a, t- a stronger toehold in the market than some of the uh, some of the sharper technologies. That said, at the other end of the spectrum, um, you've got uh, you know people like Alibaba uh, experimenting, or, or rather um, Alipay experimenting with virtual reality payments um, using the face read that you can get within a, a VR headset, for example. So we're talking about a very different environment where payments melt into the background of a much more elegant, valuable commerce experience. What does it mean to the players in payments, uh, and what does it mean to the consumer in this future environment? Well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the players in payments, and I'm falling back actually now to our Forcer's four rules of, of digital business, and um, you know, and I think that that's it's build digital experiences, uh, build digital, improve your digital operations. It's uh, participate or build uh, uh, platforms and, and, and continuously innovate. And, and so if you think about those four principles, I think um, that's what payment providers, people that are in the ecosystem need to do. So that may mean uh, improving your backend systems to be more agile and maybe partnering with your merchant customers or your financial institution customers uh, to build new experiences for their customers. And uh, and then also reaching out uh, if you're a financial institution and maybe uh, reaching out and partnering with companies like Alibaba or Amazon or other technology platforms that are out there in the space uh, to continuously innovate. And I, and I think for me, one, one of the interesting aspects of this is if you are truly moving to a world of autonomous payments where, um, you know, a, a payment can take place without your sort of immediate or explicit consent because it's actually happening without your, you know, without a direct interaction with you, then somebody somewhere will be managing the rules and brokering that rule set, um, the rule that the customer will have put in place at some point around what transactions are permissible and who can transact with whom. And I think that, for me, is the really interesting question. You know, who is actually going to be, um, you know, the rule makers and the rule keepers? And that's a role that we still see um, that will need to be filled. Well, this this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much, Brendan. Thank you very much, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. If you'd like to learn more about the future of payments, download our complimentary report at for.com slash future payments. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash future payments. Thanks for listening.